Good morning, everyone. My name's Ron, and it's my pleasure to bring the second Bible reading to you. My wife and I, we've seen the movies, um, heard the story over and over again. But after my wife became a Christian, and she read it afresh this game a couple of years ago, she said, This was horrible. How horrible it is. So we pick it up from verse 27 after Jesus has been sentenced to crucifixion. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him, they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put on his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gore, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself from down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, He can't save himself, he's king of Israel. He can come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you ever saved me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a stone, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again, with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Good morning, friends. It's wonderful to see everyone. It's wonderful to be together, um, particularly on a day like today. It is a solemn day, but also a joyful day. If I haven't met you, my name's John Thorpe. I'm the Senior Minister here at City Anglican. And so if you are joining us for the first time, then a particular welcome to you. Let me pray, and then we'll spend some time in this passage. Dear Lord, we come to your word today with a profound thankfulness for what you have done for us on the cross. I pray as we reflect on the events of that day now that we might better grasp your mercy and grace. Amen. 
As Australians, our experience of royalty is really completely symbolic. Uh, so everyone loves the Queen, I think. Uh, we, well, lots of people loved Diana. Uh, I'm not sure if they loved Charles quite as much, and they probably didn't love each other that much. Uh, we're not quite sure what Harry's up to, but it always seems to be dramatic. And Will and Kate seem like really nice people who have cute kids. Uh, they have enormous influence, uh, but not a lot of institutional power. And that's a good thing, because throughout history, kings and queens have tended to look after themselves far better than they have looked after everyone else. And if you're just sort of wondering about that, you look at their housing arrangements and you look at our housing arrangements and there are some you know, distinct differences. So in a world where power corrupts, Jesus comes along and says something profoundly different. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see those words lived out in the events of the cross, where the language of king grates up against this image of a crown of thorns. One is the language of power and authority, and the other is an image of humiliation. And we feel that humiliation in the, the lead-up to the cross. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And those same words, king of the Jews, were then nailed above his head as he was lifted up. And we don't know whether those words were written to mock Jesus, or if the Romans put them there as a warning to the crowd. This is what happens to aspiring kings who want to start revolutions. But certainly for the crowd, they delight in their humiliation. And for the crowd, the crucifixion is proof that Jesus is a fraud. That his delusions of grandeur as he came in the week before have now come up against the cold, hard reality of life. Now, for them, Jesus is kind of like the boxer, you know, before the match. He's prancing around and talks a big game, but then he goes down in the first round. He might have been someone in Hicksville, Galilee, uh, but as he comes to Jerusalem, he's playing with the big boys now. And one week, he's been there for one week, and one week later, he's dying on a Roman cross. And the crowd feel vindicated in wanting Jesus crucified as they throw his own words back at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. But in amongst all this hatred and vitriol, there is this beautiful irony. You know, they see Jesus dying on the cross as a failure, but it's actually at the cross that Jesus will fulfil all of these words that they're mocking towards him. And it's at the cross that he will be vindicated as the true Son of God. 
And so let's have a look at these three accusations and see how Jesus answers them in what happens at the cross. So Jesus says he'll destroy the temple and then do a rebuild in three days. Now the Apostle John uh, picks up some of the original conversation where he says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 40 years, 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Uh, so Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body and being raised again from the dead. And he's talking about how in his body he will fulfill the role of the temple. So the temple represented the presence of God. And in the, in the middle of the temple, there's this place called the Holy of Holies. And that represented symbolically the dwelling place of God. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by this huge curtain, like absolutely massive. Uh, it was so thick, it was kind of like, like a, a handful thick, like 10 centimetres thick. And it's more like a, a, a wall of material uh, rather than a curtain. And that wall said three things. It said, God is holy. Now, we are not holy, and we are separated from the God who created us. Uh, but in that moment when Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what happens physically with that curtain being torn uh, represents what's happening with Jesus and what's happening for us relationally with God and what Jesus achieves on the cross. Yeah, our natural state before God is that we are separated and we are condemned as a result of our sin. Uh, but Jesus in his death deals with that sin and makes salvation and reconciliation possible. Uh, the image of the temple curtain kind of reminds me of a Jungle Book story I used to read as a kid. This one's particularly for the children in the room. So when I, I don't know if you've ever seen these, but, but you know, perhaps suggest my age. There's a story about this great wall that appears in the middle of the jungle. And all the best of the jungle is on the other side of this wall. But it didn't matter how much you know, the animals try to go through the wall, uh, or the hyena tries to go around the wall, or the monkey tries to go over the wall, nothing works. And the moral of this fable is this, this wall is like sin. It separates us from God and from God's goodness. And thankfully, Jesus breaks through that wall when he deals with our sin on the cross. So the crowd mock Jesus for his seeming inability to save himself. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. But again, they, they miss the irony of, the, of these words. If Jesus does what he wants them to do, if he chooses to save himself, they may well believe he's from God, but he will no longer be able to save them. Uh, because Jesus is dying on the cross as a substitute uh, to pay the price for their sin and for our sin. And it's in his substitution that it's possible for the curtain to be torn. And depending on how we view the world, uh, that can either be exceptionally confronting or conception exceptionally comforting. Uh, it's, it's confronting if we believe that everything is fine in the world and we are fine just the way we are. We don't need anyone's help. Now, if we feel we're entitled to good things from God, 
And life is really about God endorsing my lifestyle choices and blessing my lifestyle choices and God excusing perhaps a few of my little indiscretions. If that's how we view the world, then the cross challenges that perspective. For God to allow his son to die means that something must be seriously wrong. You don't die for someone lightly. So despite what we tell ourselves, uh, we are not good people and everything is not well in the world between us and God. So that's a confronting reality. It's even more confronting when we recognise that God is also just. And so God will not ignore our sin. I think we often see justice and love as incompatible. If you love someone, then you'll simply ignore all the bad things they do. Uh, But let's test that for a moment. Okay, I want you to imagine you're driving down the street, you see the person in front of you is clearly speaking, okay, there's no debate, right? And the cops pull them over, right? Now, I, I, I think you would expect them to be booked for speeding. That would be your reasonable expectation. They've done the wrong thing, uh, they've been caught, they're booked. Uh, now, what happens, or imagine if that cop, that, that police uh, officer then, was actually the driver's mum. What would you expect would happen at that point? Now, what you expect to happen and what should happen might be two different things. But what should happen is they should still get booked, shouldn't they? It hasn't changed the crime. They've still done the wrong thing. It also hasn't changed the fact that their mother still loves them as a person. And that's sort of what happens in this moment. God loves us, but he still sees our sin, and he will still be just, and he will still punish sin. So that is a confronting reality. Uh, We cannot presume that simply because we are loved, that God will ignore our sin. The comforting side comes when we realise that we might not be good uh, and that God is just, but we are still loved. And if we're overwhelmed by the guilt of our sin, if we feel we can't approach God because God could never forgive us for all the things that we know we have done, then at the cross we can see just how much we are loved and just how much God is willing to forgive us if we ask for forgiveness. Now, I don't know which of those descriptions resonates most deeply with you. Uh, You might be a Christian who is complacent about your sin. You might be someone who feels you could never become a Christian because God would never forgive you for what you've done. But whoever we are, whoever we have become, whatever we have done... Uh, God loves us. He allowed his son to die for us and he's already dealt with our sin. Uh, The curtain is torn and so all that's left is for us to embrace that offer. And what's on offer is salvation. And it's salvation into a new way of life. So we can't say, well, I want forgiveness, but I then want to go back to my old way of life. Uh, the, the Bible describes that like a dog that would return to its vomit. You know, the dog returns to its vomit and actually thinks it looks pretty mighty fine. No one's forcing the dog to return to its vomit. It's not a, a very helpful image, is it? But that's how the Bible describes you know, what it would be like for us to ask for forgiveness and then, and then turn back to our old ways. 
Uh, we, we're, as Christians, we recognise that we actually want to step away from those, those old ways, that, that God offers a better way to live, a way that will genuinely satisfy. And so for all the temptation of the moment, we all feel it, don't we? We feel the temptation of sin. In the cross, we recognise that that sin's paid for and that there's a better way forward. So the crowd mock Jesus uh, for claiming to rebuild the temple, but in his death, the curtain is torn in two. Uh, the crowd mocked Jesus for not saving himself, but in his death, he will save humanity. And finally, the crowd mocked Jesus for believing that God would ever consider him worthy to be a son. So verse 43, trusted in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. For the crowd, it was inconceivable to think that God, the Father, would allow his son to endure this sort of humiliation. So in their way of thinking, if God is not saving him, if God is not rescuing him on the cross right here and right now, then God must be for what's going on. And when Jesus cries out in anguish, it almost sounds like an admission that he's got it wrong. He came to Jerusalem thinking that God was for him, thinking that this would be his moment of glory, but now he is forsaken. Verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22, and it's a psalm of despair. So a few verses later, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Now those words sound pretty familiar at this point, don't they? as we read what's happening at the cross. But the psalm ends with vindication. Verse 24, For he is not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So the mocking crowd see the cross as proof that God the Father was never for Jesus. Uh, but in reality, the Father allows Jesus to share in our humanity and he allows his son to share in our suffering so that he might be a genuine, like-for-like substitute for us. And that is the good of Good Friday, uh, that Jesus stands in our place and endures the punishment that we deserve and pays the price for sin that we cannot pay so that we might be right with God, so that we might be saved, so that we might have life. And because Jesus was willing to submit to the Father, he will be vindicated in his resurrection and ascension. So the Apostle Paul puts it like this. I mean, found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And we'll see that more and more as we look on Sunday at the events of the resurrection. Uh, but as Australians, we might not have a particular allegiance to any king, uh, or prime minister for that matter, uh, but at Easter we recognise a king who is genuinely worth following. Uh, a king who did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the crowd saw the cross as proof that Jesus was a failure. Uh, but what the crowd, crowd saw as a failure, we see as our only hope. In this one moment, Jesus will secure our salvation, uh, that we can have forgiveness and reconciliation uh, with the God who created us. 
Uh, so there is a weightiness to our, our, our gathering today. Uh, we feel the weight of it as we think about the horror of the events of the cross. Uh, but there's also relief and joy and thankfulness. But he did it for us and for our salvation. So let me close by praying. Dear Father, in your grace and mercy, you sent your son to die in our place so that we might have life. I pray that each of us might know the salvation you offer and recognise the kingship of your son. Amen.